Hi everyone and welcome back to the Paramount Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. It's really great to have you all back again. Uh, and um, today we have another guest with us, uh, a really uh, new guest to the show and somebody that I've wanted to come have on for a long time. Um, there is this book called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Infected a Nation. Um, which many of my friends have been reading over the last few months and talking to me about and um, going on about how amazing it is and what it's talking about. And I've not been able to buy it because uh, it's not been out in the UK. Uh, and now it's finally come out in the UK, so I've, I've, I've bought it and had a chance to read it. And yeah, it's incredible. And today we're talking to the author of this book, um, Christine kovitz Demez. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's really great to have you. Um, I'm excited to talk about this book. It's lots of things that I'm really interested in uh, as, uh, as as a former politics student, uh, as well as um, someone who's on a spiritual journey as well. Um, yeah, this book is it's fascinating. So um, tell us a bit about kind of your background and uh, kind of how you and, and what you do. Sure. I am a history professor at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So Calvin is a Christian university, and I've been here, oh, about 16 years now. I teach U.S. history and gender studies. And um, yeah, I grew up in a small town in Iowa in a pretty conservative Christian subculture and ended up going off to graduate school to study religious history. And it's there that I was introduced to the study of gender. So I added that to the mix. And uh, really since then, I've been exploring connections between gender and religion and often um, how how these things come together in, in terms of politics. Mm, yeah, and it's all tied together, isn't it? As we'll explore in this conversation later. Um and how did this book come about? Um, what was the kind of genesis of this book? And yeah, I have my students to thank for this. So it was one of my first years at Calvin. I was a new professor teaching a course in U.S. history, and I decided to lecture one day on Teddy Roosevelt, uh, U.S. president. And I wanted to do this because I thought it was such a great way to introduce students at this Christian university to what I had learned about gender and how gender works in history. Um, and especially in this case, masculinity, how ideas of masculinity change over time time. Right. As a as a conservative Christian growing up, I had kind of heard that gender is um, static. It doesn't change. It's God-ordained. And then history shows us, actually, it changes significantly over time. And it's linked to broader economic shifts. And it's linked to race and to class. And it's linked to foreign policy. And Teddy Roosevelt in U.S. history is such a great example of this. He goes out to the, the Wild West and reinvents himself. And then he, he ends up you know, being a rough rider. And his idea of this rugged, militant masculinity is closely intertwined with his idea of, of American power and imperial power. So anyway, I put together a little lecture on this topic. And right after that class, a couple of guys walked up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there is this book that you have to read. And that book was John Aldridge's Wild at Heart. Now, uh, if you are an American evangelical, of a certain age, 20s to 40s, 50s at this point, um, you will know this book. It, it, went, it was wildly popular at the time, went on to sell more than 4 million copies. And I took their advice. I picked up a book at the local family Christian bookstore, and I saw what they were talking about. Because 
the first page, Aldridge quotes, um, has a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And then he goes on to sketch this very kind of militant, militaristic conception of what he calls Christian manhood uh, in, in this book, Wild at Heart. So he says, God is a warrior God and every man is made in his image. Every man has a battle to fight. So it's a very militant conception of Christian manhood. And um, so I read that, and this was back in around 2005, 2006, right in the early years of the Iraq War. And at that time, we had all this survey data coming out showing how white evangelicals, far more than other Americans, didn't just support the Iraq War, they supported preemptive war in general, they condoned the use of torture. And so I just decided to ask the question that historians had asked of Teddy Roosevelt, what might one have to do with the other? This vision of, of manhood, masculinity have to do with this question of American power. And that really set me down this road. Uh, I set the, the project aside for a time, uh, had a, a few other things to do, but it was really in the fall of 2016 with uh, a the the evangelical support for Donald Trump becoming increasingly apparent that the rhetoric that I heard around their support for, for Donald Trump mirrored so closely this rhetoric around Christian masculinity um, that just pervaded evangelical popular literature. And that's when this book really came together. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I, you know, I was kind of in evangelical Christianity about 20 years ago and I read that book Wild at Heart, it was recommended to me, you know. But yeah, <laughs> everybody read it. And it was like, oh, I, I remember that. And um, yeah, I mean, I was caught up in the evangelical bubble at the time. And um, yeah, um, kind of, I was told how great this book was and read it and stuff. And yeah, um, and it's really fascinating how that is that is so tied into evangelical patriarchal um culture um in particular in america we see it mostly very prominent in america because of um the nature of american culture and mm -hmm. um the, the kind of links with between evangelical christianity and politics um and yeah it's you know even 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 as someone who lives in the uk it's really obvious to see those links especially when donald trump kind of started to rise his rise to power um, which, you know, to start with seemed so unlikely uh, and everyone kind of laughed it off. And then suddenly it was like, oh, he's actually resonating with a lot of people. Um, yeah. People who maybe felt they weren't being listened to or hadn't had a voice um, um, under Barack Obama, um, who was, you know, the complete opposite. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. you know, so, um, yeah, really, really interesting. And, of course, we all know Donald Trump is – you know, um, misogynistic, sexist, racist. Um, you know, he's um, the typical, the kind of stereotype of that white, of uh, the kind of patriarchal white male. And yeah, um, and there was a moment during that campaign which was really powerful. Um, and I think you talk about it in the book that um, the tape, yes, uh, Access Trump. Hollywood. Yeah, the Access Hollywood. Yeah. Tape. So yeah, so that, that sure. That's when this this really um, uh, kind of crystallized for me, and I understood what we were what we were looking at. Because uh, I should go back. So I I, um, I I set this research aside for a time. 
back in the 2000s uh, because, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, honestly, I found this material so revolting. It was deeply misogynistic, you know, uh, advocating violence. And I, I really was, wasn't sure I wanted to live with this <laughs> for the time it would take to write a book. And uh, related to that, I wasn't sure how mainstream this was because it felt really fringe. And um, and so I, I thought, you know, is is does this really warrant the kind of attention that I would be giving it? Or is this really a fringe movement? Even though I knew, you know, the, they were selling millions of books. And this was a time when Mark Driscoll, this very misogynistic evangelical pastor, was all the rage. Uh, yeah. I still kept thinking, this has to be fringe, right? It felt so extremist. Um, so I set it aside, but I didn't stop paying attention. I kind of kept tabs on a lot of these men who were promoting this very militant conception of masculinity in evangelical circles. And what I saw in the ensuing decade was one after another of these men uh, became embroiled in scandal, uh, abuse of power, or in many cases, sexual abuse, either directly as perpetrators or indirectly supporting their friends who were the perpetrators. And, and so I just kept tabs on this. And most of this was not in the news. It was on um, survivor blogs. And um, and then fast forward to the fall of 2016, October 2016, we have the, had the release of the Access Hollywood tape. And this, if you remember, is when uh, we have on camera right, Donald Trump admitting to assaulting women, essentially. Like, this is the grab them by the pussy tape. And it was just weeks before the election. And by that time, we had already seen, right, evangelicals, conservative white evangelicals were strongly in his corner. So the nation stopped. I think the world kind of stopped to say, what's going to happen now, right? Surely, surely these family values evangelicals, the self-proclaimed moral majority cannot support him after this. What we saw happening in, in ensuing days was a couple of evangelical leaders ever so briefly waver in their support. <laughs> but within a week, they were all back behind Donald Trump. And four weeks later, sure enough, uh, we see that notorious 81% of white evangelicals, according to exit polls, end up voting for Donald Trump. And that really is when this clicked for me. I knew we have seen this before. We have seen uh, for decades evangelicals supporting abusive leaders and using this kind of rhetoric of we need we need a warrior we need we need a protector we need somebody who will do what needs to be done we need a testosterone a testosterone filled uh you know aggressive man to protect us to protect christianity that was exactly the rhetoric i was hearing and so in light of the election of 2016 when a lot of pundits were saying, how could evangelicals betray their values to vote for Donald Trump? I knew that got it wrong. It wasn't a betrayal of values. We just didn't understand precisely what those values were. And as soon as you locate the assertion of white patriarchal authority at the center of family values evangelicalism, as it must be, uh, then all of this falls into place and it all makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely, and I remember that coming out and thinking that thinking exactly what what we were talking about. Like, surely they can't, they can't, they can't support him after this. This goes against everything they they talk about all the time. Um, you know, it's against purity culture. It's against you know, it's against all these things that they preach about. And then it's like, what they're supporting him? <laughs> like they're voting for yeah. him? Like, and it was, and then it was that. I think that's when it kind of dawned on me, like. 
Oh right, like this is this is deeper than this is deeper than that. Um, yeah, kind of. It's almost like you know, white men are able to forgive that kind of thing because it's a white man thing and it's a strong, it's a strong manly thing. You know, like yeah, um, boys will uh, be boys. Yeah, yeah, and um, which was really disturbing to hear. Um, <laughs> Although sadly, I wasn't surprised. Um, unfortunately, at that point, that that certain people were willing to do that, and and even since, even since then, there's been a lot of white, even white progressive Christian leaders, white men who've who've been found guilty of of doing horrible things, and then have been welcomed back by other white men. Um, and kind of this redemption story, like. Oh, I've learned my lesson, you know, like um yeah. you're not really sure that they really have. You just it's just a story that's being sold to you and it's it's kind of like, oh man, this is all this is all linked. This is all the yeah, same thing. Yeah. It's, it's like women will do anything to defend themselves and to excuse themselves of responsibility. Uh and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you, I mean you have to kind of understand, like you said, this goes against purity culture. Uh, but it only kind of goes against purity culture because purity culture is itself deeply gendered, right? And so purity culture um, works with assumptions. Uh, um, uh, it, it really rests on gender difference, right? Men and women are created different in every cell of their bodies, as somebody like James Dobson will argue, which, you know, technically, biologically, sure. <laughs> um, what that means then is, you know, we're, we're looking at a, a bunch of opposites. So femininity versus um, masculinity. And so when it comes to sex, or sexual purity, there's this idea that again, men, by virtue of being filled with testosterone, this is how God made them so that they can be aggressive, so that they can fight to protect faith, family, and nation. This is how God designed them. Well, testosterone just comes with certain side effects, right? Aggression, lack of self-control. But I mean, you don't want a man to be tame. You need that wildness. You need that. It just needs to be channeled correctly, but you do not want to um, to tamp that down. But virtue comes from, in, in kind of the social order, comes when that male aggression is wedded to uh, femininity, right? And so it's it's female virtue that will preserve social virtue. And that's why you need women to be modest. You need women not to tempt men who are not their husbands. And you need wives to fulfill the sexual needs of their husbands. And this comes through loud and clear in, in this big genre of sex advice manuals for evangelicals, uh, right here too, selling millions of copies, and so you just have to understand how that equation works. You know, I, I wasn't really joking. This boys will be boys. You understand that men are created very differently, and self restraint is not really one of their virtues, and that's why you need women to exhibit that, and why you need women to meet their husbands' sexual needs. What you see happening then is when things go awry, when there are abusive situations, when there is sexual misconduct. Time and again, you see that it is women who end up getting the blame. A, a, a wife can be blamed for her husband raping a child because clearly she was not fulfilling his needs in the way that they needed to be fulfilled. It's that blatant and that disturbing. And that's kind of the rhetoric that I traced historically. And that's um, why the last chapter of Jesus and John Wayne is a history of these evangelical sex scandals. And what's so disturbing isn't just the um, what men have done, the perpetrators. What's equally chilling is the way in which 
evangelical communities time and again end up dismissing or condoning um, that violence and end up blaming victims and protecting abusers. Yeah, and it happens so often, and it's so obvious. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's very disturbing, and and it's almost like <laughs> you know, men men have no responsibility for their actions, and women have all the responsibility for everyone's actions. Yeah, uh, and there's this. <laughs> I was just here when I was hearing listening you listening to you talk about this. It was it struck me that that so men don't have any responsibility for themselves, but they think they have response they're able to have responsibility for everything else. They're meant to be in a position of power. They're meant to be the ones making the big decisions. They're meant to be the ones in leadership. Um, yeah. But yeah, their responsibility for themselves. Yeah, they're exactly <laughs> their responsibility is to claim that responsibility, right? So the, the responsibility of a man is to claim his power. And so men can be faulted when they do not claim their authority, when they do not assert their authority over women and children, when they do not claim that leadership, right? That's when men are are um, held accountable within this ideology. So they need to they need to claim that power and they need to assert that power. Otherwise they are deemed, you know, not real men. They are they are called a Emasculated or feminized, and they are seen as as shirking their religious duty. Mm, yeah, and it's almost a tragedy in one sense because they're kind of brought that way since birth, and so yes. right from childhood, men are kind of indoctrinated into thinking, "Well, yeah, I don't have responsibility for my body or what I do," um, and women are taught that it's it's their responsibility to control themselves and everything and to do what pleases their men. Um, and you kind of get sucked into it. And it's it's really sad that lots of people have. That, doesn't, that does not absolve people of responsibility for their actions as adults right. um, at all. But um, yeah. uh, I don't want to make that really clear. But it is kind of a tragedy in that it's become, it became so cultural – culturally systemic that people just got brought up with it without knowing any different and uh it's going to take a long time to to change that yeah you know the, these teachings are inculcated from a very young age and so uh you know somebody like james dobson writes books called bringing up boys where he he urges parents to really you know let let boys embrace their aggression their testosterone you know fighting and you know have them play with with toy guns when they're little and then you know train them in the use of real firearms as they grow older this kind of a uh this kind of teaching is is pervasive within evangelical child rearing manuals i will say when it comes to sexuality, the teaching is a little bit more complicated, or certainly it was um, at the height of purity culture, where boys too were expected not, you know, certainly teenage boys, they were expected to wait until um, they were married um, and otherwise to remain abstinent. But what they were taught then is like you, you, you hold off because you're going to experience such amazing sexual pleasure when you are married if you follow God's rules. So they were they were kind of told, well, explicitly taught that you're going to have mind blowing sex, you know, on your marriage night and from from henceforth, and your wife will will fulfill all of these needs. And so that ends up setting up for you know it doesn't necessarily absolve all boys. Um, 
to to engage in sex outside of marriage, although it does set up this dynamic where it's it's easily forgivable in many cases, but it also sets up these really unhealthy conditions for marriage where women are and men are brought together um, and kind of have all these expectations for what their sexual relationship is going to be like. And often it isn't. And I mean, they're really heart-wrenching stories of couples who were raised up into this purity culture, um, embraced this patriarchal marriage and sex roles, and just utterly failed and have to sort out either the marriage's end or, 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 or sometimes they have to walk away from these teachings entirely and kind of rediscover a, a different way to be in relationship as, as man and woman. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it always ends in tragedy, you know. And, and I mean, like, there's the a kind of, everyone talked about the phrase deconstruction. Yes. Um, that, that, in a sense, is a term that is used for people who are kind of detoxing from this and yeah. learning it and freeing themselves from it and um, having to uh, learn new ways of, of, of seeing relationships, new ways of seeing their bodies, new ways of understanding gender. Uh, and obviously decolonializing as well and understanding um, systemic racism and the, the impact of imperialism um, and how that has has influ- influenced um, American culture in particular. But, um, but it, and there's, a, there's, there's a degree of it in British culture as well because, you know, this is kind of, we're the, we were the big colon- colonial nation. Yes. Um, <laughs> who yes. kind of... Um, did, did that to the world kind of thing, uh, including to America. So mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's definitely elements of it in this country, although we're not, we're much more of a secular country uh, than mm-hmm. America. Uh, for example, abortion is not a political issue here and um, right. that kind of thing. But um, there's still elements of that in our culture. Uh, and we see that with ER politics as well, as well with, with, the, with the prime minister that we currently have in, in the UK, who is almost like a, a British eaten educated version of, of Trump. Yes. Um, so, um, so yeah, and it's, it's really deeply rooted. And, and of course, like I touched on that a minute ago, it, it impacts our politics. It impacts who we vote for and the type of candidate we vote for. And, um, and that has a knock on effect on, on culture as a whole. Um, and this reminds me of, I mean, I, I said in 2016 that, it, that there were some, there were some similarities between the election of Donald Trump and the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, um, who actually used the same election catchphrase, I think, make America great again. I think, I think he, yeah. Yeah, the resonances were there. Absolutely. That Reagan kind of waltzed in, right, in the, in 1980, um, in, in opposition to, to President Carter and to the Carter administration. And, uh, evangelicals, many evangelicals voted for, um, Jimmy Carter in 1976, not surprisingly, because Carter was a white evangelical. He was a Sunday school teacher, right? He was, uh, he seemed very much to be one of them. And this was also like right in the mix, uh, in the midst of this kind of 
American party realignment, right? Where you have um, uh, conservatives and, and Southern Democrats in particular, uh, white Democrats shifting over to the Republican Party that that really coalesces in, in the election of 1980. And uh, But by in 1976, things are still really up for grabs. So you have a lot of white evangelicals voting for Jimmy Carter, thinking he is one of us. He's this refreshing, you know, moral Sunday school teacher. That's just what the nation needs after the Watergate scandal. Um, but then Carter um, comes into power and he is a deep disappointment to conservative evangelicals because what he means by something like family values is not what they mean. He has a much more uh, capacious understanding of, of what might constitute an American family. Um, he supports the Equal Rights Amendment, right? He supports uh, women's rights. Uh, and, and conservative evangelicals look at him and think he's betrayed us. Um, and so Card- or, or Reagan comes along not only does he know exactly what words to say um, in, in terms of domestic policies, right? he switches sides on things like abortion, and um, but he also very much like comes across as this tough guy. Carter seemed to be weak. He seemed to be a wimp in terms of foreign policy in particular, but presiding over this this recession and you know oil crisis, and and then Reagan kind of waltzes in fresh off his California ranch with his cowboy hat and cowboy boots, and and. And he, he talks about America as not being a weak or troubled nation. We are a city upon a hill, and he does want to restore American greatness. And that's what he promises. And conservative white evangelicals absolutely flock to his side. And, um, and that's when we see this, this party realignment really take hold um, and in and, and, uh, evangelicals don't really look back. 1976 is the last time that you have you know, considerable numbers of, of white evangelicals voting for the Democratic candidate. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I've always felt it was really fascinating because um, this speech that Jimmy Carter gives where he talks about uh, the dangers of capitalism and materialism and accumulation of of possessions and um, valuing people by what they own and by, you know, how how bad this is. Um, And... It's like, yeah, that's that's right. Yes. You know, he's he's poignant. Actually, like saying this is this is capitalism, and this is really bad. This is not how things should be. Uh, we can't go down this path, you know. And America has this choice to either face up to the realities of this system, which is basically falling apart mm-hmm. um, in the late seventies, and mm-hmm. it was in the UK as well. We had the same the same issue, yeah. uh, or. And we actually name it and deal with it, or and we change it, or we just pretend it's not pretend it's not a problem. We go to certainty, we go to yes. boosting our own ego and our pride and stuff and and all that kind of thing and just forgetting all of that stuff. And of course, in America and in the UK we choose we choose the latter. Um and, and that's why this whole idea of this of you know, evangelicalism and patriarchy and this patriarchal system is all tied into capitalism as well because it, it oh yes it's because it's all about certainty it's all about not dealing with things not dealing with pain not dealing with trauma not dealing with our problems trauma just trying to avoid them and hide from them and um and that's what we chose in 1980 1979 yeah. in the uk um and uh i think we're, we're seeing the consequences of that now 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's true, and I, you can see it perhaps as a um, uh, in terms of uh, Christianity. You know, Carter represented a kind of prophetic Christianity, prophetic in that you know self-critical and and really assessing uh, in, in our case American history and American Christianity in terms of you know what what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be American? And it was it was a a, a a self-critique really at the heart that we need to aspire because we have so often failed to live up to our ideals. We need to aspire to, to, you know, course correct, uh, which is a very different model from a Christian nationalist approach where Christianity and power go hand in hand. And what is good for Christianity is good for America and vice versa. And it's, a, it's this very, um, um, uh, you know, distinctive understanding of the role of Christianity in society. And it's one that is very comfortable with power. The more power, the better. And then kind of by virtue of whatever Christians do is by definition um, righteous. Whatever America does is by definition righteous. And and so he comes, you know, somebody like Ronald Reagan will use language like, you know, the evil empire, which is, uh, he's that, you know, to talk about, about communism. And, and he, he gave that address to American evangelicals and that just spoke their language. And it really tapped into this idea of God is on our side. And so goodness and righteousness is on our side. So by default, whatever we do is good and right. And that is, I think, a more attractive model of Christianity and power to many people. Um, that seems better. It seems uh, it's a little bit more fun to have have God on your side and to be able to just claim power and say that you're doing it for righteousness sake rather than to embrace this more critical understanding where you might have to sacrifice for somebody else's good. Mm, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, um, that just brings to mind another event that happened in the 80s whilst Ronald Reagan was president. Um which was the Iran-Contra affair um, and Colonel Oliver, the trial of Colonel Oliver North. Now, over in the UK, and I, I was probably nine, ten years old when this happened, I remember that, and it was on the news, and everyone was talking yeah. about how, how bad he was and, like, you know, this is this is an awful thing. He should be, you know, put away, and this is, you know, what he did. He did all these, these bad things. Um, mm-hmm. That was kind of the reaction here. Um, yeah. But in America, and I think you mentioned this in the book as well, it's the rea- the reaction was very different, uh, especially with even in the evangelical circles. So, yeah, let's talk about that and, and what it tells us about this this culture. Yeah, I think I was about the same age, and I was so confused by Oliver North because I remember at the time, you know, kind of reading the these news magazines, Time and Newsweek, that we my family subscribed to, and thinking, okay, this guy is on trial. He's a criminal. He did something terribly wrong. He's a traitor, and and then kind of picking up how I was hearing him talked about in religious circles, and he was a hero. He was a great American hero, and I remember just not being able to solve that. That dilemma of like, who is this guy? And is he good or is he bad? And I never could get a really clear answer. And it was fun to go back as as a historian now and to understand why it was so confusing because to conservative evangelicals, he absolutely was a hero. He was a hero precisely because he did what needed to be done, because he wasn't constrained by uh, uh, laws. 
and uh, and he was able to advance, uh, you know, American greatness with the cover of American goodness. Uh, and and he was a tough guy, and he took the fall, and he was loyal to his commander in chief, and all of those things were exactly what they loved about him. But I didn't realize the full extent of conservative evangelicals' adulation of Ollie North until I researched this book, and I saw how you know uh, Derry Falwell Sr had him out to Liberty University to give the commencement address, and he was hailed as this hero there. I saw how he was invited to address the Southern Baptist Convention, this national convention, and he, you know, there too, in those conservative religious spaces, he was seen as this incredible hero. Evangelicals raised money off of Oliver North, and Oliver North uh, North raised a ton of money off of conservative evangelicals. And there was a synergy that really, uh, uh, you know, continued for decades uh, with Oliver North, the book sales, uh, evangelicals just snatched up his books. And then he became a commentator on, you know, conservative Fox News Network, um, and even to become the head of the NRA, all of this makes perfect sense. And so Oliver North became this kind of symbol of uh, evangelical values and what what they really valued. Um, and it, it didn't matter that he um uh, uh, you know, was convicted for a time, uh, that was just more power to him. Exactly. And of course, now, it may, now when you talk about that story, I think about, I think about it, it actually makes more, Donald Trump's rise to power and, yes. and, the, 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 and the tapes and the reaction to that makes way more sense. You know, yes. it's, it's because they just, it's, it's almost like if you're a white man and evangelical, you can, you can do whatever you like as long as it's in the right cause kind of thing, you know. Exactly. Um, you don't have to take responsibility for it, you know, because. Yeah, you yeah. can break the rules yeah. yeah, because somebody needs to. Somebody has to. And, yeah, I spent a lot of time on Ollie North, partly because he was fascinating. But I kept wondering when I would send my editor drafts, I'm like, he's he's not going to let me get away with this. He's going to say you have to cut the Ollie North section. And he never did. And, uh, and I think it's for that reason, right? It's such a clear kind of harbinger of where we're going to end up. And you could just hear the echoes of Donald Trump as you read the Ollie North story. And, and you can realize again, you know, that this this should have come as no surprise, evangelical support for Trump in 2016 and persisting since then, because we we had it all in front of us uh, a generation earlier. This is a consistent pattern. Yeah. And um, of course, you could even take that into the January um, assault on the attack on the Capitol yes. as well, where you have a bunch of largely white men breaking the law yeah quite clearly breaking the law and threatening people hurting people um smashing windows all of these things because and they felt they had the they had the right to do that Um, (laughs) they had the moral right to do that and get away with it and not face any consequences you know and they genuinely believe it and that's the scary thing they actually genuinely believe it it's not like some it's not even like a malicious kind of, oh, I'm going to, you know, I know this is, I know I shouldn't break the law, but uh, it's right. actually like, yeah, I, I'm allowed to do that. It's okay. Yeah, like, absolutely. And that's the terrifying thing. It is. It is. And, you know, watching what unfolded on January 6th, it was chilling. Um, and I, you know, on the one hand, this is, this, you know, 
this is a fringe, right? This is, you know, the the vast majority of conservatives, conservative evangelicals, Republicans were not there storming the Capitol. So it's important to acknowledge that. However, what I look for are, you know, affinities. What, you know, what percentage of Republicans, of conservative evangelicals are horrified and, you know, condemning, vocally condemning what happened. In what percent are quiet? A lot of, I, I was looking very closely, January 6th, January 7th, like days after, uh, in, in conservative evangelical spaces, and I heard very little. First, there was denial, saying this was Antifa, right? This was the left. This wasn't, um, this wasn't us. And then when it became, you know, undeniable, um, then I heard a lot of, um, well, either nothing, silence, or, um, well, I don't condone violence, but, and a lot of justification that followed that, that, but, and, and I think that's what, um, what, what should concern us, right? That what will, um, what will stop the, you know, the mainstream from condoning acts like this? What, what, what will, um, will hold them back? What will lead them to say no? you know, go no further to say, no, we need to preserve American democracy. We need to preserve our democratic institutions and norms. And this kind of teaching, I think, um, and embracing this kind of militancy and us versus them mentality and the ends will justify the means rhetoric and ideology means it's very difficult for some evangelicals to draw that line. It's very difficult for many evangelicals, I think, to say, no, that is a step too far. And that's something that concerns me. So to be able to draw distinctions, you know, the vast majority of of evangelicals are not perpetrating violence, but are they willing to call it out in no uncertain terms? And that's where I see a lot of um, ambivalence. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I noticed that on social media too, um, following some of the um, American politicians um, and just trying to pay attention to see who, who was saying what, you know, and yes. was not saying anything, you know. Yes. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised by anything like that now, but it's still it's still horrifying. And, um, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's, and, yeah, there's still people out there. I see this on Twitter all the time. There's still people out there who bump into people who still believe that uh, Donald Trump won the election. There's people there out there who think that, that 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 Joe Biden isn't living in the real White House and isn't the real president, and you know, and people actually like intelligent, rational people are actually believing yeah. that stuff because yeah. they can't because they've been taught not to to just cannot accept reality that 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 undoes their certainty. Um, that that can't. That's an inability to process trauma and grief and loss and. And, uh, and uncertainty, like they can't deal with it. So the only certain thing they can say is, "Oh no, 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 no!" Trump won the election. Trump won the election. Trump's still president. Yeah, um, Biden didn't win the election. Uh, and because because that because that's just certain, and they don't have to actually do any of the work of processing what's what's really going on. Yeah, and I think also in the United States we have, um, you know, the. It, 
recently you hear a lot about echo chambers, right? And how social media can create these echo chambers, but conservative evangelicals have, have created their echo chambers, their own media empires for generations now, right? They were very intentional going back to the 1940s already to, to produce their own kind of Christian media, their Christian culture. So you have Christian publishing, which is a really big thing in the United States. Um, you have, you know, Christian radio, Christian television. And, um, and so it is possible to, to kind of grow up in this evangelical subculture where all of your news sources are coming from Christian radio, are coming from, you know, maybe World Magazine or, or even Christianity Today. And so you're really consuming different sources of information than other Americans are. And you're consuming that information and also being told not to trust quote unquote, secular media. Um, this, you know, suspicion of the mainstream or lamestream media that you hear um, today, it has a long history. The evangelicals have been saying this for a very long time. You don't trust mainstream media. Don't go to Time and Newsweek for your, your information. Um, we need our own Christian sources. Um, you can only trust the inside. And so uh, after generations of this kind of rhetoric and, um, you, you know, generations that have grown up just really hearing one narrative um, that and not to trust the outside sources, you can see how they will be particularly susceptible to conspiracy theories today, even that seem patently ridiculous to those who have um, you know, a kind of trust in the mainstream media. Um, there are many people who have just grown up told that you only trust, you know, our trusted sources. And so you see that the, 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 the pieces um, really um, have been set in place uh, for decades now already. And so again, what we're seeing shouldn't come as a surprise, even then when it kind of hits you in the face and it seems, is this really where we are at? This widespread um, conspiratorial thinking within conservative evangelical circles, it does appear that, yes, this is exactly where we're at today. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, it's it's, and when you're outside of it and you can see it, it's so obvious, and it's just just it's 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 horrifying because it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of that culture has made it over to the UK, um, although we're not a Christian culture here. Yeah. Um, but within Christian circles, um, there is that subculture of you know Christian publishing and you know Christian music and Christian this yeah. and Christian that. Uh, and, you know, um, I remember 20 years ago when Harry Potter first came out and I was still in kind of the bubble of Christianity, uh, as it was, um, as it is, um, being told that I couldn't read Harry Potter because it was about witchcraft, you know, it was advocating witchcraft, you know, and of course now having seen the films and knowing the stories, it's nothing to do with that. Um, so, uh, it's not doing that at all. So, um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's it's incredible what happens within those within those bubbles, and yeah, um, you're just completely detached from reality in many ways. Yeah, and what's interesting is because so Jesus and John Wayne, it really is a, a history of popular evangelicalism, and it centers this this popular culture, right? Christian publishing and, and media and so on. Uh, because mm-hmm. of that, it isn't just an American story because these cultural products are exported, as you know, like they they cross borders. I, I've heard from a lot of Canadian readers. I've heard of from a lot of readers in the UK, in Brazil, in Australia, in China, 
in the Netherlands that Mm -hmm. these books that I'm writing about, these preachers, right, these ministries have expanded globally and that Christians around the world are consuming this white evangelical popular culture and it doesn't it doesn't work the same way i mean as you as you note uh the uk is is um, a predominantly secular culture canada too does not have the same history of christian nationalism that we have in the united states china very different again and australia same thing right um brazil some interesting similarities. But what happens then is, right, these, this ideology does get embraced in local contexts. And so in places like Kenya, it gets embraced and then combined with local patriarchal tribal traditions. And it's a pretty toxic blend, right? In places like Brazil, we see how it, how it takes shape in, in those um, very patriarchal contexts. And so that's been fascinating since Jesus and John Wayne has released and is being read in all these spaces to be hearing from Christian around the world saying it has been exported and here's what it looks like in our cultural locations. And um, the stories that I'm hearing are actually harrowing in many cases, um, particularly with respect to this connection between patriarchy and abuse. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. And that is, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's not much to say about that. It's just horrific. Um, this whole culture is is about shame and abuse and prejudice and um, you know racism sexism um, all of those things Um, it's yeah it's it's just for someone that's meant to come from Jesus um, or is sold to us as coming from Jesus it's as far removed as from the way of compassion and justice yeah. Um, and inclusion um, and equality that that Jesus clearly embodies. It's it's, it's completely contrary to that. So, um, <laughs> um, and it's yeah, it's 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 an it's a strange irony. But um, yeah. what is yeah, it? Yeah, and that's that, a. Oh, I was just gonna say, you know, on that point, you'd mentioned the term deconstruction before, and. Uh, what's been interesting to me is is that you know this book is, is certainly kind of um, uh, being used to uh, to spark deconstruction, but often it's not a deconstruction away from Christianity, away from the faith in its entirety. It's a kind of cultural deconstruction, getting at exactly what you were suggesting, right? <laughs> Wait, this doesn't really look like Christianity, right? What you know, this doesn't really look like the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels when you when you take on the, this, these layers of kind of militancy and misogyny and you know militarism, and um, and that's what's been so interesting that a history book by showing how these layers got added to Christianity over time, it can actually free people who've been kind of captured by the this ideology, raised into it, discipled into it, um, they can deconstruct the cultural elements while still retaining uh, the faith at the heart of it. And that's that's um, the, the majority of the deconstruction that I see happening right now within American evangelicalism. There are certainly people who are walking away from Christianity altogether, but there are many more people who are holding on to their faith and being able to use this kind of history to see just how much of the cultural baggage that has been packaged and sold as Christianity really isn't. And it goes against their core Christian beliefs. And that's the deconstruction that I see happening 
all over right now in American evangelicalism, in families, in churches. It's really interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, and I've always said that deconstruction happens differently for everybody. You know, some yeah. people, yeah, like lose their faith. Some people just find a different kind of spirituality, which is, you know, um, influenced by many different things, um, yeah. different philosophies, different religions, yeah. different influenced even by science. Um, that's kind of all, all of those. That kind of journey is my journey. It's had all of those influences, um, and some people become atheists, some people um, become agnostic, and some people find a different a different perspective on the story, on the Jesus story, and um, yeah. kind of remain Christians, but maybe closer to the heart of their faith than they were before. Um, and certainly, exactly. with my deconstruction, there's. There's still a big Jesus element to my to my spirituality, and um, but it's it's more at the heart of of of, of Jesus, you know, the um, compassion, inclusion, social justice, um, mm-hmm. you know, equality, uh, all of those things. Um, and rather than <laughs> rather than the kind of the system um, that's been built around. Jesus, the empire, in a sense, that's been built around Jesus, um, with you know this patriarchal evangelical capitalist system, um, which is a totally separate thing from really what Jesus is all about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's really interesting. So, how, having talked about all that, just to kind of we come to the last few minutes, what is giving you hope right now? What is what what gives you hope for the way forward? Um, for you know, culturally and um, politically in, in our faith. Yeah. So when I finished this manuscript, <laughs> I did not have a lot of hope. Uh, I, uh, you know, I think very early on, I thought, uh, if I write this book, maybe I can change things. And then just a few weeks into my research, and certainly a few months in, I, I abandoned all hope because I saw just how deeply embedded uh, this ideology is and, and how um, the real powers that were at play. And I thought, this is not going to change. And so then I kind of shifted my purpose to, I just want to tell this story. I want to tell it as powerfully as I can. I want to hold it up for all to see, and that's all I can do. Um, and so when I got to the end of the the um, writing process, I actually got a note from my editor. Um, it was really rushed to get it into production in time to come out before the 2020 election. So it was a pretty intense um, process. Um, we were almost done. And then, then I got an email from my editor saying, Kristen, uh, this is really depressing. Uh, you need to give us some hope. You need to give your readers some hope because <laughs> this is a lot. This is too much. Uh, for your readers to handle. And so I thought about that. I looked again at the book. I looked at the, the conclusion. And then I, 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 I wrote back to him and I said, you know what? I, I've got nothing. I feel just as depressed as you do. And I can't change the story. Um, and he said, okay, I respect that. And then a couple of days later, I got another email. He said, Kristen, just give us something, anything. And so that's when um, I went back and I thought, um, I gave him the last line of the book, the last sentence. Um, what was once done might also be undone. And to be honest, at the time, it seemed utterly uh, futile. It seemed so weak. And I was embarrassed to even send it to me. He's like, oh, you know what? I'll take it. Um, but 
but the thing is, there's truth to that. There is truth because once you, so much of what evangelicals have embraced and perpetuated and promoted, they have done so as quote unquote biblical truth as, you know, this is God ordained, eternal, unchanging, but they've packaged and sold so much under that umbrella uh, that is not, you know, eternal, unchanging, and arguably not God ordained. And so history shows that, right? You show how these pieces came together. You show who was doing what, who was making these choices. And usually it's somebody who was making these choices, um, to enhance their own power, to consolidate their own power. And once you just see how that was done, it frees believers up to question, is this where we want to be? Is this in fact aligned with the core teachings of our faith? Or do we need to undo some of this? Do we need to take a few steps back? And to my surprise, I have to admit, this is exactly what's happening around Jesus and John Wayne. Right? The book is not a gentle book. The subtitle itself makes that clear. It's not really written to woo evangelicals. Um, and yet the book has become enormously popular within evangelical circles, including conservative white evangelical circles, because readers are seeing that so much that has been uh, sold to them as just plain Christianity is not just plain Christianity. And so it is being used as this tool of deconstruction. That is not something that I anticipated. I didn't anticipate that it would reach so far into these you know, conservative corners of American evangelicalism and that it would have the power to disrupt things there. So honestly, I have much more hope now, um, almost a year out from the publication of this book because of what I've seen happening in those spaces. And it just takes one in any community. It takes one member of a Bible study. It takes one member of a very conservative church to say, hey guys, we, we need to read this book. We need to wrestle with it. You know, might not agree with everything, but we need to at least wrestle with it. That's far more than I had hoped. And it does give me hope um, that we, we might see some change. That's brilliant. That's so encouraging. Um, yeah. And you know, I'm I'm still reading it, and it's yeah, it's it's powerful, and it's an important book, and I recommend it to everybody. It's available now, Jesus and John Wayne. Um, you won't forget that title, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> um, so, how can people connect with you and your work? Sure. I have a website, kristendumay.com. That's uh, Dumay is spelled D-U-M-E-Z. I put a lot of writings up there. I also have a Facebook author page at KK Dumay, and I'm on Twitter, same handle, at KK Dumay, and that's K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. So it's like Dumez. And I, as you know, uh, we've connected on Twitter. I'm on Twitter pretty much constantly. And so that's a really good good space to see what I'm up to uh, and, and kind of see what, what uh, uh, you know, what's going on in, in the intersection of religion, gender, and politics in, in the United States. Lots of lots of good conversation there. Fantastic. Um, and I highly recommend all of that to everybody. Um, so thank you for coming on the show. This has been such a great conversation. And um, yeah, really fascinating, really powerful. And um, thanks for listening, everybody.